It has been said that there is only one ruling class in America. Welcome to the second episode of Liberty Lifestyle Podcast. Today, Tyler sits down with Danilo Cuellar of PeacefulAnarchism.com to discuss Danilo's path to anarchism, understanding economics, peaceful parenting, unschooling, and other valuable topics. On PeacefulAnarchism.com, you can find Danilo's work on many areas such as voluntarism, agorism, precious metals, anarcho-capitalism, Austrian macroeconomics, statism, the Federal Reserve, libertarianism, and more. Please subscribe to the Liberty Lifestyles podcast website and follow us on our social media platforms. Thank you for joining us on this journey. We look forward to having you with us in the future on Liberty Lifestyle Podcast. Giving truth the liberty of appearing. Cool. So you ready? Yeah. So. All right. All right. So welcome Danilo Cuellar to the Liberty Lifestyle Podcast. Danilo uh, hosts the peacefulanarchism.com website. And uh, Danilo, before we get into too much of the philosophy about uh, and what that's about and peaceful anarchism, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, kind of maybe something people haven't heard before in previous interviews. Uh, throw something a little personal in there if you'd like, and take as much time as you want with that. Um, let's see, something that they haven't heard. <laughs> I got through this story a couple times. Um, I mean, I, uh, I grew up um, not really uh, caring about uh, public school as much, like not really wanting to excel to the best of my ability, right? I basically just did the work and did average and then studied on the side stuff that I was really interested in, like philosophy, um, like Eastern Western philosophy, like um, alternative medicine, um, astronomy, uh, theoretical physics, cosmology, that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, and then I got into uh, medicine, uh, uh, holistic medicine, acup- I studied acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine. And so that got me into uh, learning about, you know, Monsanto and vaccines and GMOs and, and that kind of stuff. And then, uh, and then um, you know, I was into this, this website. It was one website called Farm Wars, and they advocated for um, the banning of GMOs, right? In a time, I'm like, hmm, that sounds like a good idea. Ban GMOs. <laughs> and uh, but then later, you know, as, as I as I learned more and more about precious metals and the monetary system, and what is an economy, what is what is uh, politics and government, um, and you begin to realize that um, you know, really, the the primary evil is statism is the state right uh, and that um, using the state to to ban something does not necessarily and not only does it not solve the problem it worsens the problem <laughs> every single time right so that's kind of where I uh, discovered that and um, yeah I mean reading about you know creature from Jekyll Island and Rothbard you know case for the hundred percent gold dollar uh, what has government done to our money um, anatomy of the state Right, and Larkin Rose, Most Dangerous Superstition, and then, you know, a couple of other uh, books like that. And so I really immersed myself uh, deeply in that. And uh, yeah, I mean, and then uh, I was telling you before, Michael Shanklin approached me about doing, uh, contributing content for the Voluntary Virtues Network uh, in 2014, or in May. 
and um, pretty much every single person <laughs> that has started has stopped except for me. So if you go on the Voluntary Virtues Network channel right now, YouTube channel, you will only see videos of me on <laughs> my interviews. <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's become my it's become my default channel. Like <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, so yeah, then I just kind of branched out and and I admin a bunch of pages and so yeah. <laughs> okay, nice. And uh, that's interesting. It, it's it, we're gonna get into it a little bit more later, but. I, I find it interesting that you didn't really mention you have a background studying in school or in college, you know, all these topics that you've come to understand and be able to articulate so well uh, in the way that you do. And also, you know, let's mention your background in acupuncture, Chinese herbs, massage therapy, and Eastern nutrition, you know, because that all, in my mind, does relate, of course, to what we'll be talking about here tonight. But, uh, you know, some people might not see that, how that relates, but I think that it, it will. Um, so tell us a little bit more about that background as well. Yeah, so I first uh, acquainted myself with Eastern philosophy, um, uh, with uh, Lao Tzu, in, specific, in particular, the, uh, his seminal book, The um, Tao Te Ching. I first read that when I was like in 12th grade, 11th grade, and, you know, a really tiny book, very very poetic, and... Um, <clears throat> And I loved it, and uh, you know, very philosophical. And it's basically what un, what's the foundation of Chinese herbal medicine or, or traditional Chinese medicine, you know, which includes acupuncture, Chinese herbs, gua sha, cupping, moxibustion, um, acupressure, and um, yeah, and acupuncture, and so and Chinese herbs, and so um, yeah, that that forms the foundation. And and um, and what I later realized when I started studying voluntarism is how many parallels there are because compared to Taoism, you know, and like, like um, they say that Lao Tzu is the first libertarian or anarchist in history uh, philosopher, right? And that the way he, um, the way he talked about the Tao was always like, you know, the, the less that you do, the more gets done. Right. Or one, one uh, quote he says is the, the, um, the king or the emperor should, rule his kingdom the way you should cook a small fish, which is that you should not, you should not, um, turn it and move it around because it just disintegrates in the pan, right? So just very gently you turn it. <laughs> and so he says the best emperor acts or, um, he makes his mandates and laws and edicts so that people don't even know he exists. And by not, by meddling very little things get done. So to me, that's that's kind of uh, the description of spontaneous order. In that, the, the more freedom that you give to people, um, you will find that things just thrive and succeed and work themselves out. People, you know, people find solutions. People self-regulate. You know, you don't need an overarching um, dominant institution to violently impose um, arbitrary edicts. And when you do that, you most often create more chaos, more destruction, more suffering. Wow, yeah. I mean, that's quite the opposite of, of what we have going on, though, and what most people would think about that. And I think people cringe uh, at the thought of letting go of so much control and kind of if the reins come off more. But I think we will talk about this as well, how this at home can be practiced. And the results are not what most people think they would be when you 
take the reins off uh, when raising children as well. Um, but let's switch into peacefulanarchism.com that you founded in November 2013, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is peaceful anarchism? So, yeah, <laughs> I actually I actually decided on, the, on that name pretty quickly. Uh, I was pretty sure about it, and and it kind of it really fits me. A lot of people say it's a perfect name for my <laughs> for my podcast and my website, and, and that I embody that. And um, and my wife actually didn't like it because she 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 thought you know anarchism is just too contentious, too inflammatory of a word. And I said, that's why we put the peaceful in there. You got to make sure you you uh, make it clear <laughs> we're about peace. That's our focus, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, so in the beginning, I started writing articles for the most part and, um, you know, and, and, and including other people's videos. But then once I started making my own content, you know, slowly it kind of morphed into focus on my own content. Now. So that's all I do now is basically just um, post, you know, my short videos and my interviews and my, and I used to do solo podcasts, and so I, yeah, I used to do that. Um, but yeah, but so, so yeah, I focus on um, anarchism, voluntarism, agorism, precious metals, the monetary system, central banks, uh, Federal Reserve, um, homeschooling, unschooling, peaceful parenting. Um, yeah, well, oh, philosophy, mora morality, economics, you know, that kind of stuff. And actually, when people ask me about it, like, like when I tell people, uh, when I meet people, and I talk to them, and, and I tell them, oh, I have a podcast and a YouTube channel. Most people are like, oh, wow, it's so cool. What, what's the name? And so I said, hold on. I'm not going to tell you the name yet. <laughs> Let me tell you what I talk about. <laughs> so I say all of those things that I just mentioned except anarchism, right? I say everything, and they're like, wow, that sounds really cool. And so in that way, I think I show them that – I'm, uh, you know, um, intellectual. I'm a, I'm a deep thinker. And then after they understand all that, then they say, oh, by the way, I'm an anarchist too. <laughs> yeah. and, and so in that way, it kind of dispels their apprehension um, as to what they might feel if I were to say that word first, right? So that, that's just my, that's my way. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think the tagline is uh, just do good things. I think you could start with that as well. You know? <laughs> yeah. Start with the tagline. Yeah, actually, that's I, I can't claim ownership. I can't claim credit for that one. I got that from this. There's this. Um, at one point, my wife and I were kind of got into a little bit of a raw, um, what is it, raw vegan group, and we went to like one or two of their meetings. And the one guy, and we were on. I was on their emailing list, and every time he would finish his email, he said he finished with "just do good things." And I thought that was such an awesome phrase to end your. Um, you know, and his emails, and I'm like, I'm going to adopt that. <laughs> I loved it so yeah. much. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, you've also been involved with a lot of other networks, like the Conscious Resistance, the Seeds of Liberty. Uh, you mentioned the Voluntary Virtues Network. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and your, your kind of uh, relationship with these various groups and, and how that's going. Yeah, so the Voluntary Virtues Network started in May 2014. Michael Shanklin approached me about that. Probably maybe like 30, 40 other content creators. We were all making videos for this one YouTube channel. And and, and so it was really full of, of people and, and different kinds of uh, videos. And then slowly they all whittled away, fell by the wayside, and I'm the last man standing. <laughs> um, and uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's that's fun. And then, and then the other one is the... Um, the Conscious Resistance Network, uh, headed up by Derek Rose and John Vibes, 
and he approached me a while ago and he wanted me to post my videos on his channel. So I, I do that. I met him in um, Liberty Fest, uh, like I think twice in Brooklyn here in New York. And uh, he's a cool guy. And I read his book, the first uh, book of his uh, trilogy. And uh, he's a really cool guy. And and then the Seeds of Liberty podcast, I started with uh, Jeremy Hengler and Dave Painter from Facebook. And, um, yeah, we started that, like, going um, to come on two years now. And I, I think it's two years, yeah. And, and they're actually going to have their 100th episode very soon, um, next uh, March. And um, and so they, yeah, yeah, we started that together. And, I mean, slowly I uh, – because they, they transitioned to a different format or a different platform and I couldn't follow, so I kind of stopped. But they're, they're still doing it, so that's great. Um, but yeah, you know, we basically, you know, the way the name was, was, uh, uh, originated was Dave was saying, you know, I feel like, I feel like I'm Johnny Appleseed planting seeds of, seeds of liberty. And he's like, wait a minute, seeds of liberty. <laughs> That's how it came about. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but yeah, yeah, they're, they're doing pretty good with their Facebook page. You know, Jeremy makes his memes and some of them go pretty good, pretty viral. Um, so yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, how did you become an unschooler, and are you a radical unschooler? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, 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 yeah. One of the things I tell people that I focus on a lot in my channel is, I think, um, homeschooling and unschooling and peaceful parenting. I think those are. I mean, partly because I have kids, and and that's and so I identify. And also, I hang out with a lot of homeschooling um, and some unschooling. Uh, families, and so um, yeah, so I'm so I'm pretty acquainted with that. But um, but yeah, I just like to focus on that because I really think that the way that we raise our kids is paramount to transforming the future the way we want to see it. So basically, I tell people, whatever way you want to see the future, that's how you raise your kids. Right. Or, or another way is, um, some people say, you know, you got to raise your kids to be tough, you know, be, you know, have, give them thick skin so they can uh, deal with the world because it's a cruel and heartless world. Right. Whereas the way I look at it, I say, well, maybe if we raise our kids to be, you know, kind, gentle, compassionate, loving human beings, um, maybe the world will then be a little less cold and heartless, <laughs> you know, rather than preparing them for like war. <laughs> and so, um, that's, for me, that's the idea of peaceful parenting and how important that is, you know, treating your children with respect, respecting their self-ownership, um, their rights and w what they want to do, you know, what their interests are, what their passions are. Um, and that's, to me, that's what unschooling is all about, is respecting what kids are actually interested in and helping them to pursue that. Um, so, so when you say radical unschooler, I think of Dana Martin, who I, I interviewed, and uh, she's a fascinating woman, and, you know, she wrote, you know, she's done a lot for unschooling. But, um, but yeah, so I think when you say radical unschooling, what I think about is, is like no rules. Absolutely, you know, kids eat whatever, kids go to bed whenever, kids, you know, do whatever. And I don't think we do that um, because my wife does work from home. So we, we have to go to bed, you know, at a particular time. And, you know, we don't really, we don't really, we don't really let them eat whatever, <laughs> basically. You know, try to get a little more healthy stuff, basically. Um, so I wouldn't say we're radical in that way. But I definitely would say that um, 
yeah, the unschooling aspect as in, as in as little structure as possible. And basically, um, you know, the way I describe it to some people is I don't know the future. I don't know what will be relevant in their future. And so how can I possibly tell them this is what you need to know for your future in 20 years when you're an adult, right? I have no idea, right? So basically whatever they're interested in, whatever they follow with enthusiasm, with passion, that will necessarily be what's relevant to their future, <laughs> right? So so therefore, again, it's like, like Lao Tzu, you know, you have to step back and and uh, stop intervening, stop meddling, and just uh, allow them to develop um, in the way that they that they will, you know, exposing them to different things, but just allow them to develop. And you have to be patient and not be afraid. And I think I think um, given the chance, kids will succeed and will thrive. Like that's by default. Because I think I think we're all born with a passion and a love for learning. Kids are curious by nature, right? And that's basically, to me, <laughs> what government school does primarily, which is destroy and beat out the love of learning. And that's the ultimate tragedy. Absolutely. And, yeah, you mentioned Dana Martin there. You know, she's a little bit more of a controversial figure in the scene, and, and the, not just because of the radical unschooling, but other things. And, and you know, I've watched a lot of interviews with her, and, and she's great. Um I've, I'm thinking about it a lot lately, how ridiculous it is to assume that we can uh, know what the kids will need to learn now in order for the future that's approaching in such an exponential growth rate of technology and how we learn even now. And I think you even mentioned in one of your blog uh, posts about that, the video blog series, um, just mentioning, you know, and I've been thinking about that a lot recently, how ridiculous it is to assume that we know exactly what each child is going to know. And it just happens to all be the same as well for each <laughs> child. Right. You know. And um, something else you mentioned, uh, this phrase um, in one of your video blogs, I believe, was the, an artificial need for the state. And kind of explain to me, you know, what is an artificial need for the state and is, how does it get created and, and what is the effect it has on us? Hmm. Well, I'm trying to figure out which video that was. <laughs> but uh, you remember which one it was? Uh, well, just go off of that term, you know. There's, okay. a, there's, a, there's an artificial need that's created and then it's said, oh, now it's justified because right, we right. need it for this reason. Well, well, I often describe the state as um, the self-licking ice cream cone <laughs> in that it creates its own need, right? Or another way to put it is um, the bureaucracy must expand to satisfy the needs of the expanding bureaucracy. <laughs> um, um, so I think that the state is, is something that um, people feel that they need primarily because most people have grown up in authoritarian households where they understand the difference between an authority figure and an inferior and, you know, the parent and child. And, and that is as made clear to them in those kinds of um, households. And then when they go to government school, it's made even more clear uh, the difference between, you know, student and teacher. And, you know, you have to know your place and you don't talk when teacher speaking and, you know, you got bells and, you know, you got to move it here when the bell goes. And, and so you're very um, regimented and structured that way. And people, they begin to feel like, and also, I mean, just the history <laughs> that they teach, uh, you know, how 
<clears throat> the state was needed um, to uh, eradicate child labor, right? The state, the state was needed to um, abolish chattel slavery, right? So, so in so many ways, the message is um, is to promote the artificial need for the state. Um, and so, and, and you know, the other thing I was thinking about recently is is I, it's just amazing how people. They're surprised when I, when I mention this concept because you're like, if, if you went to a school that was paid for by Coca-Cola, what kind of stuff do you think you would learn in that school? <laughs> would you learn the value of juicing? <laughs> Most likely not. <laughs> you know, or a school that's paid for by Monsanto. Would you learn the value of, you know, good nutrition and holistic medicine? <laughs> Most likely not. <laughs> so... Um, you know, whoever, how do they say, whoever pays the piper calls the tune, right? So whoever is, whatever, wherever the funding is being, come, where is coming from, you you really have to expect that, that that institution will make sure that it will create the artificial need for its existence, right? So all government schools are funded by taxation, right? And, and so, you know, it's Department of Education. And so how can you not think that, kids that go to government school will not be inundated with this kind of um, propaganda. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it's just, it's not, it's not surprising when you, when you think about it like that and you think about, you know, from uh, economic standpoint, human incentives, right. You know, um, you know, you, you're, you're getting money from here. So <laughs> you gotta, you gotta realize what's going to be the out, the outcome of that. So um, yeah. So, so in that, in that perspective, it's, um, it's obvious. <laughs> Now, did you go to public school? Yes, I did. And, and you know what's interesting is that that's one of the uh, things that my parents, who not necessarily are um, supportive of, of homeschooling, um, got, I got you know, a good amount of resistance. And, uh, and one thing my mother said was, was um, you, went to go, you went to public school and you turned out okay. Look, you, got, you have two kids, you got a beautiful wife, you got a nice... You went to college, you got a nice profession, you know, you're a smart guy. <laughs> What's wrong with public school? <laughs> and, and basically what I, what I respond to that is, well, there's um, something called, uh, you know, a principle by Frederick Bastiat called the seen versus the unseen, right? So, um, you know, what you see, like, for example, like taxation, right? You know, what you see is money being stolen from productive individuals and it goes to building a bridge. And they say, look at that. It's wonderful. The government built a bridge. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And then, but that, that's the scene. So the unseen is what would the people have done voluntarily with their, with their currency if it wasn't stolen <laughs> by force, right? And so the same thing. Um, I was forced to go to government school for, for um, 12 years, right? 15,000 hours. And, and that's the scene, right? I learned all this stuff. I mean, I wouldn't even call it learning because learning is voluntary, right? It's more like indoctrination. <laughs> you were not given a choice. Um, and so the scene is that I went there, but the unseen is all the lost opportunities of time that I could have spent devoted to learning things I was actually interested in. <laughs> That's the part you don't see, the destruction of the potential, the unseen potential. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, and you know, that's pretty interesting that once you've come out of that, um, 
you can still manage though to um, develop critical thinking. It can be reinstilled. Um, you can deprogram. You can go through that process. We can still heal. Um, it's possible. It's unfortunate, like you said, that the time can't be. Um, you can't get that back, and I, I feel the same way. It, it almost angers me to a certain point. <laughs> um, switching gears, though, let's move into a little bit more of economics. W what is the free market and or a free society, and do we have that now? Yeah, yeah. the free market, um, the way I describe it to people is just, or capitalism even, synonymous to me, is people interacting, peaceful people interacting, interacting voluntarily consensually, right, with consenting um, contracts or, or transactions. And, um, and to me, that, that forms the, the majority of what we call the economy, right? The, the economy is just billions of peaceful people interacting consensually, voluntarily. Um, and everything, and, and none of that requires force at all, right? All of that is completely voluntary. Every business must survive solely based on the merit of its good or service, right? It's a meritocracy. Um, whereas the state is the parasite that comes in, inserts itself, and siphons off a small portion of that wealth, that productivity, right? And, uh, and then comes around and claims that <laughs> we would be, you know, violent cannibals if it were not, <laughs> if it did not exist. Um, so, so yeah, to me, yeah, the free market is just, it's just again, what people do naturally, which is be productive. Most people are productive, right? Whereas whenever the state tries to help um, people that maybe um, can't be productive for whatever reason, most of the time it's doing more harm than good, like let's say the welfare state, right? Incentivizes people or rewards them for sloth, for laziness, Right. And, uh, and it, and it sets up like the, the, the poverty trap, which is like, you know, they can't get out of poverty because if they make past a certain amount, they're going to lose all their benefits and they're going to feel, uh, they're going to feel it severely. And it's just really hard to get past that hump and earn more than what they're getting in benefits from the welfare state. Right. So, so, um, so yeah, so that's to me, yeah, the free market is just, um, <laughs> everyone <laughs> who, who, uses, um, you know, who just transacts voluntarily, who just does not use violence to solve their problems. To me, that's that's what the free market is. Okay, great. And on a free society, I mean, just kind of extend on that a little bit. It, does the free market facilitate a free society? Uh, what is your definition of a free society? Is, is that something you're striving towards even? Yeah, so, yeah, I, I personally like the term voluntary society. Um but, um, yeah, I mean, I think definitely that, you know, again, when people are allowed to transact freely and voluntarily, that naturally to me is a free society, except for the fact that people, for some reason, again, going back to artificial need, believe that the state is necessary and legitimate and that we would be lost and chaotic and violent without it. Um, whereas I think what we're trying to do with our podcasts and, and writings is have people realize that no, <laughs> not only will we, not only will we be fine without the state, we will thrive <laughs> immeasurably without the state. <laughs> so a free society 
or a voluntary society is not such a an abstract thing to me. Again, it's just you know it, it just happens when people understand, as most people do, um, the basic laws of morality. Except for some reason, we believe that people who call themselves the state, agents of the state, have this giant exemption from morality. So once we divorce people of that contradiction, um, I think that statism will just crumble um, immediately <laughs> of its own accord. Nice. Yeah, and so now I kind of want to bring it together with uh, how did you get into economics? Was there a specific book? Was there a specific video series? Uh, somebody you spoke to at work? What kind of brought you from your background, 15,000 hours in public school, um, <laughs> to a kind of more Eastern uh, studies in college, which maybe kind of opened you up to accepting things a little bit more, maybe in a certain way? How, how, what, what was it that economics, because where's the jump there into that interest? Um, so the first, the first time I heard about economics was in, in um, 12th grade. I took an economics class, and I remember uh, <laughs> this is one, the one lesson I remember from that class was uh, the, the guy was talking about um, the law of diminishing marginal utility. And, um, and he said it was like seventh period, right, so near the end of the, the school day. And so he said, who here didn't have lunch, right? A kid raised his hand. So he's like, go to my desk. There's a box of donuts over there. Eat as many donuts as you can. <laughs> and so he's teaching and then and then he comes back like I don't know 15 minutes later and the kid's done and he's like alright now first donut scale of 1 to 10 how good was it and he's like oh it was awesome I didn't have lunch it was beautiful it was, I don't know 9, 10 and then and he's like second donut he's like yeah that's, that's still pretty good maybe 8, 9 third donut he's like oh I was getting full <laughs> after that 5, 6 fourth oh I didn't finish it it was, it was horrible third <laughs> and, and so that's that was a great illustration of of the law of diminishing marginal utility, right? The 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 more that we consume a particular unit, um, the lower its value becomes, right? And uh, that, that was a fascinating thing that I always kept. And also, one other interesting thing is, um, I remember that was that was 1999, and the book Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki just came out, and he he held it up, and he said um, he said this this is a great book. You should all read this book. And of course, I didn't. Um, <laughs> but only years later when I was studying more about economics, I kind of started reading a little bit of Robert Kiyosaki and, and learning about him because he focuses a lot on business, entrepreneurship, um, precious metals, the monetary system, central banks, Federal Reserve. Uh, so yeah, he's a, he's a pretty interesting guy. Um, and also another interesting thing I remember from that class is he said, um, Ben Bernanke is the most powerful man in the world. <laughs> and, I had no idea who Ben Bernanke was, and uh, and only later, you know, years later, I discovered oh, he's he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And, um, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, not Ben Bernanke. Alan Greenspan. Alan Greenspan, right? Alan Greenspan. He was the chairman. Sorry, yeah, my fault. Alan Greenspan, yeah, with the glasses. Okay, the, the, they're all bastards. The glasses and the wrinkly face, yeah. <laughs> right, and uh, and so yeah, I realized only later, like how true that statement was. You know, he's the most powerful man in the world. And and just yeah, how how immensely um, influential and deep the connections go between central banks and the state, and how it's the lifeblood of the state, right? Because once the state monopolizes control over the currency, that's that's the lifeblood of the economy, 
and and that that in itself really um, secures the state the the power of the state, right? Um, so so yeah, that was that was fascinating. And then and then later I learned about you know Creature from Jekyll Island. That was an awesome book. Taught me a lot about precious metals and the economy and central banks and the history of central banks. And then um, economics in one lesson, Henry Hazlitt. Um, there was another book, uh, Louis Carabini. Um, the book was called Inclined to Liberty. Very, very tiny book, uh, but very, very interesting book about basic economics. And it's fascinating. Oh, yeah, and another YouTube channel. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Amanda Billyrock or Amanda Johnson. That's what she calls herself now. You familiar with her? Yeah. So, so she used to call herself Amanda Billyrock, and she had this uh, YouTube channel, and she basically went through each chapter of economics in one lesson and and she did like a two or three minute video just describing each chapter and I thought that was awesome and and so I learned a lot from that um, but yeah economics I think is foundational um, to understanding business and entrepreneurship and um, the free market and capitalism and you know you begin to realize that people are not um, nefarious and sinister and wicked <laughs> you know most people act based on rational self-interest, right? And when you begin to understand that, um, you begin to realize, like, wait a minute, okay, so it kind of makes sense, you know, the way, uh, the way a business works and why they put out a particular product and, and um, you know. But, like, like, I think most people, when they come to anarchism, they kind of, a lot of people come from the, from the left where they hate corporations, right, like the, the Occupy people, um, which is fine, but you have to realize that the corporation really is not the central problem. It's, it's, it's part of the problem, but it's not the central problem, right? The reason that they are so influential and powerful is because they have sovereign immunity, right? State protection, the corporate shield. That's why they're powerful. So it's like you, you cut off, you know, you go after Chase or you go after Monsanto or you go after, you know, Halliburton or Raytheon. You're just like cutting off the heads of the Hydra. All right, just another one's going to grow back. Another one's going to grow back. So you have to go to the root, right? Which is or statism, right? Or or the state, um, because in order for them to become so powerful and protectionist, they all the time have to appeal to the state for protection and give you know you know bribe lobbyists and influence various legislation and laws and minimum wage and and so so yeah so economics foundational. Um, for anybody, and and you know when I talk to people about economics, I don't I don't really mention the word economics. Is when you say that to people, their eyes glaze over and they're like, oh, that's boring. But when you just talk about just talk about it, the, the principles of you know seen versus the unseen, the broken window fallacy, and and um, you know um, let's say law of unintended consequences or opportunity costs or all these things, right? They begin to understand like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and let me give you let me give you one example real quick. So my mother. Who is not? Um, she's very critical of me, by the way. Um, she's like a Bernie Sanders supporter, socialist, uh, you know, Democrat, hardcore Democrat. Um, and uh, and so we, I was in the kitchen, and she broke a glass, and and she's like, "Oh my god, I broke a glass!" And she's like, "I'm so annoyed because you know it's just a waste of my time. It's like 15 minutes down the drain. I'll never get back. I have to clean the glass up." I said, I said, you ever heard of the broken window fallacy? <laughs> that was a great way to bring it up, you know, um, and how destruction can never um, 
produce a benefit, right? Destruction just equals destruction, you know. And for the same reason, you know, we didn't get out of we didn't get out of the depression because of World War Two, right? It's like it's like saying murder is good because murder helped us to get out of, what? That doesn't make sense. So and, uh, and yeah, basically the, the the entire state apparatus with in terms of taxation. Um, is the broken is like the broken window fallacy writ large, you know, just stealing, stealing, stealing people's um, productivity, and you know who knows what they could have bought for it. Who knows um, what people would have uh, voluntarily supported? We have no idea, right? So, so yeah, yeah, that's great. One of my favorite memes lately online is uh, when you're arguing politics with someone and they've never heard of the Rothschilds, and it's this guy like laughing hilariously, you know, because it's so true. Like you said, how influential that structure is. There's a reason why we're not taught about that in school. There's a reason why it's not brought up. Um, and they teach you the surface level things. Um, but it's great. The creature from Jekyll Island, of course, key, um, the secrets of the federal reserve, Eustace Mullins, um, books along these lines, just, uh, written quite a long time ago, uh, relatively speaking, as far as, uh, you know, the internet way before the internet was here, these researchers were putting out the work and still a creature from Jekyll Island. Hello, everybody. This is Danilo from PeacefulAnarchism.com. Out here in nature, once again, enjoying the spontaneous order that is the world around us. Today, I want to talk about the idea or the argument that we need the state because we need somebody who's going to make the rules. We need somebody in charge. Everybody has to comply with the same rules. There must be a uniformity. Somebody has to be in charge. Now, I think this illustrates the fundamental misunderstanding of what anarchists advocate in that we advocate for no rulers, but not no rules. There are fundamental rules inherent in nature, in mathematics, in chemistry, in thermodynamics, in morality, in dating, <laughs> that are commonly understood that don't require a central authority to fabricate decrees and mandates punishable with violence. It's not necessary. Everyone knows if you try to violate the, the law of gravity, what happens? If you try to violate laws of mathematics, you just make bad mathematics. <laughs> if you try to violate the self-ownership of another human being, in the form of theft, assault, rape, and murder, there will be natural consequences. Whether it be by those individuals, those victims, or their families, or their friends, or a private security agency. The fundamental idea of anarchism and voluntarism is that nobody has an exemption to the laws of universal morality. And that is exactly what the state is. 
one giant exemption on morality. If the actions that the state or agents of the state do are done by private individuals, it is a crime. There is no there is no exemption on morality. There can never there there can never be. So there we are surrounded by a world of rules. Um, you know, as I said, the dating the dating world, many rules about how to date and it mostly involves consent. When there is no consent, that's, that's not called dating anymore. It's not called a relationship. It's called assault or rape. So it's fundamental to understand that these rules that people um, by definition, by default, abide by, they were not formulated by some bureau, by some committee, by a group of bureaucrats sitting in a smoky room behind closed doors inventing rules that everyone else must live by. No, that's not how the world works. Prices are not determined by some small, small group of individuals or a committee or a bureau. That's not how prices work. Prices, like interest rates, like money, <laughs> the way money should be, are determined in the free market. Now, interest rates and money can be subverted and controlled by ruling classes, ruling institutions, and used and perverted to be used for their aims. But historically, these things are natural outcrops of the free market, of economics, of capitalism. So we all inherently live morally, for the most part. Most people do not use violence to solve problems in their daily lives. They don't advocate other people use violence to solve problems in their daily lives intentionally. They don't advocate for a large group to solve problems using violence. So why is the state some giant exception of morality? Why do people believe that if enough people get together and vote, that all of a sudden theft does not, is not theft and it can be called taxation? Or all of a sudden it's not kidnapping and it's called the war on drugs? or any number of victimless crimes. All of a sudden it's not mass murder and it's called war. Only when people fabricate this belief in authority, this idea of statism, do the, the world of morality that we all inherently understand as children in the, in the form of don't hit and don't take other people's things, only when people fabricate these ideas is this world mutated and perverted and transformed into something monstrous and barbaric. I often ask people, what is, 
what is the worst thing in the world, the thing that you would most want to see disappear? And many people tell me, war, ignorance, suffering, poverty. And I would assert that many of those things either stem directly or indirectly from the state or the idea of statism. Many people say we should abolish the government. No, there is nothing to abolish. What is the government? A group of men and women with guns taking your things. Saying that they have a right to do things which you do not have. Because they have a uniform, because they have a badge, because they are an agent of the state. And when we no longer recognize anyone to have an exemption from morality, we will by definition eradicate statism. It is not about abolishing the government. It is about recognizing that people, that no one has an exemption to morality. You don't have to burn down the buildings, you don't have to overthrow the government, you don't have to assassinate anyone. Destroy all the buildings, take away all the guns, all the tanks and the jets and the public schools. Give someone a switch to turn off government. If you can turn off government, if you could turn off the state and make a stateless society tomorrow, would you do it? You could, but it wouldn't change anything because you have not appealed to the mind of the people. Those things only exist because the people want them to exist. They have created an artificial demand for the state. And so it is therefore incumbent on us as freedom-loving individuals, as voluntarists, to educate people that there is no such thing as the state. There are only men and women with guns forcing you to pay them and forcing you to pay homage to them and their rulers. So there is no state, there is no such thing as a government. There is only the idea of statism and the belief in authority. The belief that because some people have been voted upon by the masses, they can commit atrocities without reproach. They are beyond reproach because they have received the majority of the vote. And what is that called? It's called gang rape. <laughs> it's called tyranny of the majority. It's called mob mentality. And that is not how peaceful people act. That's not how free people think. That is not civilization. That is the antithesis of civilization. So I implore you, please educate your fellow man about morality, about economics, about business, about free markets, about capitalism. That is how you improve the world. There is nothing to abolish. It's just a belief. Thank you for watching. This is Danilo from PeaceFinderGism.com. Enjoy nature.
Alright, cool, yeah, so, uh, what are your thoughts on the whole cryptocurrency and Steemit and Bitcoin or Dash, you know, what are your thoughts on crypto in general? Um, yeah, I mean, I love them. I, I love the fact that they're challenging the dominance of the um, of the Federal Reserve note uh, or the U.S. dollar um, because, yeah, I really feel that, you know, that Federal Reserve product is really the, the foundation of the control of, of, um, of the United States federal government around not only here but around the world in terms of the petrodollar, right? And and the way I don't know if you're familiar with Mike Maloney from um, GoldSilver.com. Um, he produces uh, yeah, he's a he's a gold silver dealer, but he also does a great documentary series, mini mini documentary series called The Hidden Secrets of Mon- of Money. <coughs> and um, and he's done like um, eight episodes. Each episode is like half hour. Really awesome. Very informative. And um, and basically, you know, he says that we have a great deal going on, right? So the deal is we we give everybody else paper and they give us stuff. <laughs> Isn't that an awesome deal? <laughs> we print the paper and they give us real things, refrigerators and cars and, <laughs> you know. Well, how can you get better than that? Electronics, TVs, whatever, <laughs> you know. We just give them this paper. And that paper is backed up by the might of the U.S. military, right? And, you know... Um, Prime ministers or dictators or um, you know uh, rulers of other states uh, that attempt to circumvent that um, that petrodollar that U.S. monopoly um, that world reserve currency you know try to use either you know trade in in uh, other um, natural resources like oil or trade in gold and silver or trade in their own currency um, many many times they come to disastrous conclusions, you know, toppling of regimes, assassinations, occupations, coups, all this kind of stuff. And and so you really, um, you begin to understand how powerful and how necessary the dominance of the U.S. dollar is to the power of the state. And so, and that's why cryptocurrency is so valuable because it's undermining it, it's weakening it, um, it's hastening its demise, not by force or violence, but in a way that's like stealth and and it's like it's like uh, I, I like to imagine cryptocurrency like uh like ghosts and and the United States is like a man with a sword trying to swing at the ghost <laughs> and, and the ghost is like just laughing at him because all he knows is violence that's all they know right and and I remember hearing one time that um in in an attempt to confiscate or or shut down a bitcoin site like um they you know some agents of the state went to this place and they're like you know you guys have bitcoin here you know we hereby seize your bitcoin and they're like shutting you know destroying their computers and and their monitors and 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 uh and and the people there were just laughing at it they're like haven't you heard of the cloud or like (laughs) what's wrong with you people (laughs) Or do you know, you really think you're gonna kill our Bitcoin by destroying our computers? <laughs> and and so it's it's just funny how um how backward you know um agents of the state are, you know. Um and, and it's kind of funny how I think that a lot of people who are into like um conspiracies, like, you know, who get really deep into Alex Jones and maybe David Icke and they, they really think that 
the state is like so advanced, right? They're like 20 years advanced in terms of technology and they just know so much and you can never outsmart the state. No, <laughs> that's to me, that is definitely not the case. It's like, you know, you, you look at, I don't know, um, look at how much electronics have developed and then look at how much public schools have developed <laughs> over decades and you'll see how, how slowly something gets, um, how slowly something improves and progresses when there's no competition, when there's just a monopoly, right? Whereas when there is competition, you see people just, you know, inventing new things, improving things, making it cheaper, making it faster, making it smaller. Um, and, and you don't need any control. You don't need any mandates. You don't need any, any rules of that. Th things just happen, right? Um, <clears throat> so, so I love Bitcoin. I love, um, you know, I, I don't really know as much as a lot of other people. I have a Bitcoin wallet, an Airbits wallet. Um, but yeah, I mean, I hear a lot of great things about, you know, Dash and Litecoin and Dogecoin. And I remember seeing a, a list of the names like Philosopher Coin and Hobo, Hobo Coin and Ron Paul Coin. <laughs> it's like, you know, for everything, everything you can imagine, which is awesome, you know, competition, bring it on. And, and, and you know, you know, it's funny. I like to talk to people about Bitcoin. And and most people, um, they what they know about Bitcoin is what they see on like you know CBS, NBC, Fox, you know, ABC. That's all they know, right? And so they're like, oh, Bitcoin was hacked. This this Bitcoin was stolen. This one got corrupted. This these people, you know, stole all their money and all. That's all they know about it, right? Um, but um, <laughs> yeah. Mount Mount Gox. That's all they know. Mount Gox. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and so, and, and and I've interviewed on my channel a lot of um, Bitcoin specialists and and experts, and it's just fascinating to talk to them because um, they can just debunk these these myths so quickly. Like um, like like the Mount Gox, for example. You know, it collapsed. It was like a, it was like a, what do you call that? A, a hub, right? A meeting place where people stored their coins there, and they could also trade and buy things. <laughs> and um, yeah, and that that kind of got hacked, and people lost a massive amount of Bitcoin. Um, but it's kind of like saying, if a bank gets robbed, then the money, the the problem is with the money. <laughs> no, the problem is with with the security of the of the institution that's holding the money, right? Not the money. Um, or or they say, oh, people do you know they trade in drugs, they buy drugs with Bitcoin. Yeah, then they buy more drugs with dollars. <laughs> so what's your point? <laughs> You know, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I love the fact that it's it's you know it's anonymous. I love the fact that it's like lightning fast speed. You can transfer money long distances for a fraction of the, of the amount of like you know like um, Western Union and and, and all these um, you know antiquated ways people used to transfer money. People still do, unfortunately. Um, but I think that's one of the best ways that people that that we will evolve past statism is. It's not about abolishing the state. It's not about it's not about destroying the institution. It's not about defunding this agency or that agency. Um, I think it's about just as the Buckminster Fuller quote, right? You don't destroy a paradigm by fighting against it. You you produce um, a new paradigm that will uh, render it obsolete, right? So that's that's one of the best ways. That's the way I see cryptocurrency happening. Is just it's just rendering it obsolete. Like like when the email came. Who uses mail anymore? No, who uses, who writes out their mail? Nobody, right? So when, when Bitcoin, or it doesn't even have to be Bitcoin, whatever cryptocurrency establishes 
the dominant um, cryptocurrency as being um, efficient, quick, um, you know, able to transfer uh, value over long uh, distances very quickly, and you know, is secure, encrypted, all that kind of stuff. Um, whatever, whatever the market decides is the both the best suited for those um, attributes. That's awesome, you know. And and I think that um, once people begin, and also the other thing I love about Bitcoin, and I tell this often, is that you know the value has risen, not because of a of a of a law. Like for example, there's legal tender laws that say we have to use Federal Reserve notes, right? By law, you don't use it, you know, you 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 get punished. There is no law. People have to use Bitcoin. So why are people using it? Because it's awesome. <laughs> because it's convenient. Because it's fast. Because it's secure, right? So basically, people want to use it. They they naturally gravitate towards it, and that's why it's so great, right? Th- like that's why the value is rising because people are voluntarily using it. People are basing their businesses on it, and they're forming their infrastructure around it. And and so um, so yeah, that's why it's, because it's voluntary. Basically, it's all voluntary. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's very interesting to follow. And as of yesterday. Uh, when this interview has been recorded with you and I, um, Bitcoin reached an all-time high and is expected to go even higher. But that's only because, and I'm not an expert on this either, but because it was consumed uh, into the exchange. Um, so it's now becoming a tradable asset. Uh, and that's going to kind of transform it entirely. And the uh, the regulation departments there could actually destroy that form of cryptocurrency, that does not mean that cryptocurrency is going anywhere. And unless they can get rid of the internet, um, it's not going anywhere, in my opinion. Uh, I love that our Buck Minister Fuller quote that you shared. I I read it all the time. I've used it in some of my work. Um, I post it on Facebook because it's so true that, um, and that's kind of the agorism or even anarcho-capitalism. you know, we don't need to ab- abolish or end the Federal Reserve. We just simply need to use the um, non-predatory uh, ways of exchanging goods. And that's it. There's no fighting. There's no protesting. There's no marching to any Capitol Hill. It's just a information exchange and a change in behavior. And uh, I think cryptocurrency is a bridge to a different future. I don't think it's going to be a solution forever, always. Mm. I think it's a bridge out of our current circumstances. So I'd like to share a couple quotes along those lines uh, from Milton Friedman here. And one is, he said, I think the internet is going to be one of the major forces for reducing the role of government. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also said, and, the, and you know, internet kind of came along late in his life. So he, he was quite... Uh, along his path at that point when he made that statement, obviously. Mm. Um, The other one is, the most important ways in which I think the Internet will affect the big issue is that it will make it more difficult for the government to collect taxes. (laughs) (laughs) Please. (laughs) Yeah. One of my favorite quotes along those lines is uh, John Kerry, uh, who said, um, this thing called the Internet is making it hard to govern. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Right, exactly. So, did you uh, vote in the most recent uh, Donald Trump Hillary <laughs> Clinton election? I vote. I vote with my dollar every day. I vote with my money, with my with my attention, my participation. I don't vote in, in elections, in farces. Um, 
I, the last time I did vote uh, was 2008. I voted for Obama. Um, and I, I often tell that on podcasts just because I, you know, I, we like to confess our sins, right, as anarchists and volunteers. <laughs> and so, and, so, and because, I, and I only voted for him because I didn't really care. I was completely indifferent. Before I learning, uh, learning about all this stuff, I didn't care about politics. I didn't care about government. Um, I was completely indifferent. I was focused on my own stuff, my acupuncture, my piano, my chess. That's all that stuff that interested me. And so, and so my mother said, um, who was a very ardent um, Democrat, she's like, um, vote, go out and vote. You know, it's your civic duty. I'm like, all right, I'll, go, I'll vote. Who should I vote for? For, for? for Obama. Okay, I'll vote for Obama. Okay, so I voted. But afterwards, I uh, I just learned about it, and I'm like, no, why am I going to do this? This is this is ridiculous. This is uh, this is not something that we should be proud of. Um, it's not something that we should throw our support behind. Um, there's just there's there's just no way that that you know an institution of coercive power can uh, wield a force for good. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me of the quote by uh, Charlie Chaplin, which is, um, um, it's like, if, if you need power, you, you only need power to, to do to harmful, to harm people, right? It, and without that, it, it, you know, besides that, love can do everything else, right? You only need power to do harmful things. So, um, yeah, that, that kind of really, <laughs> really resonated with me. Uh, so yeah, so voting, no, don't recommend it, don't do it. Um, yeah, I just, I just stay away from it. I just, I just tell people, you know, you know, the way you vote, the way you improve the world is, you know, you, you put your ideas out into the marketplace on YouTube, you write, you talk to your friends, you, you know, you raise your children, you know, to be peaceful, loving, compassionate human beings. And, and that's how you make the world a better place. Not by, not by empowering and legitimizing a um, you know a, a violent monopoly. No, that's that's definitely not, definitely not the way that we achieve progress. Yeah, and uh, um, Charlie Chaplin, I believe, became an anarchist later in life, if I'm not mistaken. And I don't know about the next quote I have for us here, uh, George Carlin. Mm -hmm. If you voted, then you can't complain. Right. <laughs> not not the other way around, right? Yeah. If you didn't vote, you can't complain because once you give your consent, you've given consent. If you lose. Uh, if your if your master doesn't get in, and you've lost, well, you already consented to democracy, you know, and now you've said I'm okay with whatever unfolds here, even if I lose, and so you have no right to complain once you've voted. So, so any any other thoughts on the Trump presidency? Uh, you know, how does that affect you? Um, I was asked this by my um, my my grandfather and my my mother. Recently, like I guess after he was elected, which they completely hated him. Of course, most of my family is Democrat, and they completely hated him. Um, I think I think my mother wanted wanted Hillary because um, because she's a woman. <laughs> That's about it, which is which is so ridiculous. It's like it's like, and I told her, you know what? If a guy, if there's a serial killer, I don't care if he's black, I don't care if he's white, I don't care if he's yellow, Indian, Native American, I don't care, I don't care if it's a man or a woman. I don't want to have a serial killer near me, and I, I think the person should be stopped. <laughs> so it doesn't matter what gender they are. That doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is the institution that they will be on the throne of, the institution that they will be wielding, the power and the violence that they will be wielding. That's what really matters, not what gender, not what color, not what race they are. Who cares? That doesn't matter at all. Um, so basically I, I tell when people say, you know, how is Trump, is Trump going to affect me? Um, no, I'm not going to change my life. I don't change my life based on the rulers, based on, you know, who sits on the throne. No, 
I don't, I won't, I'm not going to raise my kids differently. I'm not going to treat my friends differently. <laughs> I'm not going to, you know, patronize different, different businesses. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing, um, regardless of who's in power, um, you know, promoting anarchism and volunteerism and peaceful parenting and agorism, philosophy, morality, economics. I think that's how we improve the world is, um, you know, I tell people, if, if you have to, if you think improving the world is by using government or force, then by definition, your ideas must be worthless because you don't believe you can influence people by just putting your ideas out there, like writing or on a YouTube channel or on a podcast. You don't, you, you're telling me that your ideas are worthless because you think that that's not good enough. You need to have the gun. You need to have control of the gun to, uh, wield your influence. And, uh, and that's a very, that's a very tragic thing. So, Absolutely. Uh, on a higher note, I, I've been watching a lot of your video blog series and I just think that the scenery, you know, even the background ambiance of the birds chirping <laughs> and whatnot is just beautiful. I love that um, series. I think you should definitely stick with it. You said to yourself, uh, you're quite proud of it and I think you should be. Um, the thoughts and, and the ideas that you get out there are, are clear. And I just had an, arg uh, not an argument, a discussion with somebody on Facebook the other night, you know, and he kind of made the point about clarifying the message, especially with a couple of my projects being a little bit more new. And I think you do a wonderful job there. Um, also, I was just finishing up a couple last minute thoughts and looking at the Facebook channel and saw that you were very uh, good at playing the piano and not just very good, like a excellent piano player. I watched one where you were playing with your small infant. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, that's on my, yeah, that's on my, uh, my Facebook, right. Um, yeah, I have some, some piano videos on my YouTube channel on a different YouTube channel that I used to um, have called Peruvian Pianist. And uh, I have a couple of those. And also I have videos, I don't know if you saw, of my, uh, I used to do stand-up comedy and so I have some of that. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I can I can send you those. Um, but uh, but yeah, I've been playing piano since I was twelve. And um, and you know you know the funny thing is a lot of parents who um, want you know they want their kids to learn an instrument right and, and they say okay you're going to learn this instrument for this many years <clears throat> and um, I don't care if you like it or not you're going to learn it for this many years right and most of the time the kid doesn't really have a choice right. And it's kind of unfortunate because I think that's a recipe for destroying the love of music, right? When you're forced to do it, if, regardless if you like it or not, right? So I learned, I started learning the piano at age 12, which most piano teachers would tell you is way too late, right? However, I loved it so much that nobody ever had to tell me to practice, ever. <laughs> I would practice like one hour before uh, before I went to school in the morning, wake up at like 4.30, practice an hour, come home, practice two more hours every single day, Monday to Friday. And I loved it, right? And I got really good and I, uh, I performed in the, you know, spring concert souls and ensembles and all that. And, um, and yeah, and I stayed with it and, uh, and I made some recordings, I have some recordings on SoundCloud, on YouTube. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's just one thing that I think enriched has enriched my life and is continuing to enrich. And I, and I have my gr baby grand over here and my, my two kids, they like to uh, play a little bit. So I teach them a little bit. Oh, this is the other thing I, I want, want to bring up is I love chess and I love piano. Right. And I'm pretty good at both of them. Um, 
But again, I did both voluntarily. Nobody ever had to tell me study chess, study piano. I did it because I loved it, right? And so I can understand and see how when people learn that about me, they say, oh, so you're going to teach your kids chess and piano, right? <laughs> and they kind of understand it. Like, well, you're good at chess and piano, so obviously you're going to teach your kids. And I, and I respond by saying, no, I'm not necessarily if they're interested, if they're inter- if they're interested in it, sure, you know. So the way I do it is I practice piano a lot around them. I I play my uh, I I have my chess set and I play people, you know. And I sometimes I teach uh, the other kids in the homeschooling group if they're interested. But I don't sit my kids down and say, "Now we're going to learn piano for a half hour. Now we're going to learn chess for a half hour," because that's exactly why. That's exactly how they they will end up hating it, and I definitely don't want to do that. And so, so you know, basically, if you want your kids to learn something, basically just show them how much you love to do it. And if they are interested, then they're interested. That's great. So, so yeah, I think that's one thing that authoritarian parents um, should um, change. <laughs> right. It goes back to your point before, kind of uh, taking the reins off, taking control off a little bit, and, and letting, you know, I was explaining this to... Um, Cassandra the other night which is like when you plant a seed in the soil uh, all you do is just give it the water give it the environment give it the soil and the proper uh, heat and it it sprouts by itself you don't need to magically do anything to make that seed grow and sprout into a plant it's going to do that if you provide the right environment on its own and I think that's what unschooling is. You you provide the environment. It's a little bit of guesswork. It's a little bit of the unknown. But uh, once you provide the environment for the child to kind of start to blossom, um, then all your job at that point is just to kind of keep encouraging, keep providing the environment. Um, and they will show you what they're interested in if you expose them to enough of, of the world you know they'll they'll provide that to you themselves you don't need to make them be interested in things you know <laughs> do your homework no <laughs> no it's uh yeah i think i think children are naturally curious naturally um imaginative and want to learn they have a burning desire to learn to learn and um all we have to do is facilitate that is help them bring them different resources if they need it <clears throat> um so, yeah, I think our, our job is <clears throat> not so difficult as so many people think. I think so many people, they get exhausted with parenting because they think, oh, it's so hard. I got to read them these books. I got to take them to these classes. I got to do it, you know, help them with their homework. I got to do all this stuff. And I don't think, I don't think being a child or being a, you know, raising a child to be a successful, or if they want to be successful, um, is that hard. <laughs> I think all kids want to thrive. All kids want to be successful. And, and, you know, I, I personally think all kids want to be entrepreneurs. I think that's only natural. It's like once they learn, once they find something they love, like I think the, the next step naturally is creating a business out of it. Like why wouldn't you want to get paid doing what you love, right? I think that's just only natural, you know. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so I think there's just too many parents exhaust themselves unnecessarily. Absolutely. And, uh You've been really great today, Danilo. I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, along these lines, I do want um, to ask you kind of a final question here, just um, what your message would be to that next generation, to the people that are coming down the line and picking this up as the nature of podcasting and the internet goes. Most people who listen to this will be you know, in the future picking up our breadcrumbs. 
So what's kind of your overall message to those, uh, to those individuals? So, so people in the future, um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I would, I would hope that, that, um, you know, in a few years time that the, um, the exponential rise of, of number of people who are becoming anarchists and volunteers and recognizing these, the power of these ideas will continue to rise. And, you know, and, and like we said before, you know, in order to realize a, a truly free or voluntary society, there does not need to be any violent, violent revolution, any assassination, any march, any protests. You know, all people need to do is just turn the, turn the other way, ignore them, ignore them into irrelevancy. Right. And so I think that's what I hope uh, will happen. Actually, you know what? <clears throat> In the way Larkin Rose says it, um, he says it <clears throat> really well, which is I hope one day um, everybody will be an anarchist and it won't be an, it will be a, 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 um, an amazing thing. Like, oh, you're an anarchist. No, of course, everybody's a volunteerist. <laughs> it's not a new thing. And so so basically you would say, I, I hope to make myself obsolete <laughs> render myself obsolete which is a great sentiment you know um, and, and it's actually the opposite of the state <laughs> right? they, want, they want to make sure that they're always needed right um, and they create their own demand their own artificial demand so hopefully um, our content will not be needed in the future <laughs> in the near future I think that's the hope in the same way that the message of the abolitionists of the 19th century um, their message is no longer needed today, right? For the most part, most people innately understand that it is immoral to own another human being in the, in, in the sense of chattel slavery. Um, and so, I think our job as modern-day abolitionists is to expand that concept to say, yes, and it, and it is also immoral for a state to, um, you know, or a group of people calling themselves a state to claim ownership. It doesn't have to be complete child slavery, but it, it's it's a percentage of our productivity, right? That also is immoral, and in a sense, is slavery. Um, so, you know, it, it, like like that one the meet, one meme which says, um, you know, if 100% um, theft is um, of your productivity is, is complete slavery, and 0% is complete freedom. At what point is it not slavery, right? And there is no point. <laughs> Whenever you have a violent institution claiming a portion of your productivity, you are not free. So. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, I know that Larkin Rose uh, talk, your, I think it's Anarchapoco he was speaking at or something, and I, I really liked that idea too. It's kind of like when you become aware that Santa Claus isn't real, you don't call yourself like a, a non-Santa Clausist, <laughs> you know? Right. It just it just is and that's it you know that it's over and then you move on and then and, and i think i i agree with you it will be irrelevant to declare yourself an anarchist a voluntarist a peaceful parent especially uh, once it, that becomes common knowledge and uh you know exactly we're just sharing information we're just talking about it here online um because that's how i came to this knowledge i'm not some genius who was able to philosophize all these things by myself it's people like yourself um it's people who are putting the time in to relay that information back to the to the next generation and so i really appreciate the work that you do uh danilo it's been really helpful for me to clarify the message and uh, i know people can reach you i think on bitcoin uh, paypal and patreon 
um, head on over to peacefulanarchism.com. Subscribe to uh, Danilo's channel, Peaceful Anarchism, and any other places where people can reach you or anything else you wanted to finish up with. Yeah, Facebook. Um, I think it's facebook.com slash peacefulanarchism. Um, uh, like my page, and uh, yeah, on YouTube, peacefulanarchism. Um, check out my channel, subscribe if you are so inclined. And uh, um, yeah, I got my, my Bitcoin, my, my PayPal, and my Patreon, patreon.com slash peacefulanarchism. If you want to help me produce more content, um, I, uh, I do this for free. Everything I offer is for free podcasts, you know, my, my short 10 minute videos. I, I do some writing. Um, I, have a, I also have a, a, an email list where I also send out my content as well. Uh, for people who do not necessarily use Facebook, uh, some people are. Can you believe it? <laughs> um, so yeah, so please, uh, yeah, check me out and uh, let me know what you think. And you know, if you send me a friend request and you, we don't have a bunch of mutual friends, just let me know. You know how you found me because I don't, I don't necessarily like to accept friends on Facebook who I don't have a good amount of uh, mutual friends. Um, I don't know if you're the same way, <laughs> but um, but yeah, so. So, uh, yeah, you know, send me a message. Let me know what you think of my content. It's always wonderful to hear feedback because uh, that's how we all grow and improve, right? We, we have to uh, hear what people think, right? So got to respond to the market. <laughs> so thank you. Thanks a lot for having me on your show. I really appreciate that. Excellent. Well, I appreciate your time. And thanks for joining us on the Liberty Lifestyle Podcast. Uh, truth, freedom, and prosperity. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Take care.